Lucas on Life. Hello, I'm Jeff Lucas. Welcome to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. It's something that none of us enjoy, but perhaps all of us experience, and that's being criticised. Criticism can be helpful even when painful. Criticism is part of normal, healthy relationships. If you're part of a church where you can never have an opinion about anything, maybe you should get out because you're not part of a church. You might be part of a cult. This week, Lucas on Life, it's Lucas on being critical because there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way. Settling down for a treat, breakfast in a rather posh restaurant, we soaked up the ambience of the place. There was a gorgeous old fireplace, logs smouldering, emitting that glorious smell of charred wood. The walls were bedecked with silk wallpaper and waistcoated waiters dashed here and there with platefuls of steaming food. Lovely. Gentle background music, canned but well chosen, complemented the sedate atmosphere. But then suddenly everything changed. The music shifted into a twinkly rendition of Bar Bar Black Sheep, which played through in about 20 seconds and then repeated and repeated again and incredibly repeated again. Ten minutes later, having heard the question to the aforementioned black sheep concerning whether or not it had any wool and discovering once again that indeed wool was plenteous, three bags full in fact, we felt restless and agitated. Surely the CD or MP3 player had got stuck. Other diners were frowning following the great British tradition of noticing that something was wrong but not actually saying anything about it so as to not cause a fuss but then looking forward to the opportunity of grumbling about it later on. Ten minutes later, the sheepish repetition was beginning to feel like a musical version of the Chinese water torture, and so I decided to raise the issue with a passing waiter. Excuse me, sir, can I just ask, what's going on with the music? He tilted his head to one side, the strange posture of one who wants to communicate that they're listening intently, and agreed. Yes, sir, that is odd. I'll check. Off he went and restarted the player, only now there were two tracks playing simultaneously, a cacophonic collision between Buck and those irritated black sheep. Other diners, emboldened by my inquiry of the waiter, moved into stage one of British complaining, which involves rolling one's eyes and sighing. The next stage would be full-on huffing and puffing, but we were not quite there yet. The waiter returned to our table looking bewildered, but it was then that the awful hideous moment came, and the memory of it makes me cringe even as I reflect on it here. The waiter pointed down to the floor to a handbag owned by one of our little group. That music is coming from that bag, your bag, he cried triumphantly with the glee normally associated with a detective who has cracked a difficult whodunit case. And indeed, the music was emanating from that bag. Somehow, a mobile phone had clicked on to a game app for small children, which was playing Bar Bar Black Sheep over and over and over and over again. Suddenly, the eye-rolling and sighing around the restaurant stopped to be replaced by chilly glares in our direction. I felt the frost. 
I had complained, but we were the source of the irritation. Frustrated by the repetition, we were blissfully unaware that we were the ones to blame. Guilty as charged, my lord. In telling a story that is reminiscent of Monty Python, Jesus painted a portrait of a hapless chap who runs around with a magnifying glass, mustard king to identify specks of sawdust in the eyes of others, but all along oblivious to the whacking great plank that sticks out from his own head. This person has a hobby of being critical. Apparently, this log in Jesus' day would have been the main support for a house, which would have made it about 12 metres long, a significant protrusion from one's eye. This farcical scene is frequently played out, especially in churches. Fault-finding souls, eager to criticise and catch people doing or believing something that is suspect, patrol around searching for someone or something to correct. Sometimes these people get together to form squadrons. When they find something that appears to be amiss, they pounce on it with unseemly joy, thrilled by yet another opportunity to highlight a problem or see others fail. There is a word for this perverse delight, Schagenfreude, which literally means harm joy in German, the peculiar pleasure people derive from other people's misfortune. Sometimes we're thrilled when others stumble because we've simmered with envy at their success, or we justify being glad at their stumbling by appealing to a sense of justice. It's only right that they were exposed. They got what they deserved. But some psychologists believe that we are more likely to pop open a cork of celebration when others fail when we dehumanise them, viewing them as objects of scrutiny rather than real flesh and blood human beings much loved by God. We take a pathological view, seeing them as exhibits rather than people. Ironically, when we do this, our unkind, cruel attitude is far worse than the issue that we are determined to correct, but we can remain blissfully unaware of this. Hobbies can provide distraction, so perhaps some take up criticising and fault-finding as a hobby in order to spare themselves the demanding discomfort of self-discovery. Peering at others through a magnifying glass is so much easier than staring at ourselves in a mirror. If we're in the habit of locating sawdust specks, perhaps it's time to focus more on what we're often blind to, our own faults and foibles. Meanwhile, back at the breakfast, the sheepish serenade was hastily silenced. Calm was restored, but I still felt the need to depart in haste because the glares around the restaurant continued. No one likes a picky complainer. I think a rather large apology to the staff is required, boomed a chap at the next table, and I complied, begging forgiveness from the grinning waiters. Who knows, if you or I, if we've been plank-spouting, speck-hunting, picky people, it might be that we are the cause of some grief. Perhaps in our lives, a rather huge apology is required somewhere too. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love the Profile podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith, and testimony. Here's Justin Welby. Part of my daily prayer discipline is praying in tongues every day, and not as a sort of occasional thing, but as just part of daily prayer. Listen to the full interview with Justin Welby now on The Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcast from, or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. I'm Jeff Lucas. We're thinking tonight about criticism, 
criticising how to do it, how not to do it. The anonymous letter is a frequently used communication technique expressing criticism. Believe it or not, we often find it in church life. Disgruntled and offended parishioners express their irritations and criticisms to pastors, ministers, leaders by dispatching an unsigned epistle. The lack of signature and therefore the hidden identity of the writer gives them the Dutch courage needed to put the most toxic poison on paper. Scurrilous accusations, inferences and innuendos jostle with each other in the grubby scrawl. The net effect on the recipient is devastating. It's like being hit by a relational exocet that comes screaming in from the dark, demolishing in a few seconds your confidence, your sense of calling and hope. Trust me, I know, I've had a few of these critical notes myself. Sadly, it's not a new idea, this anonymous letter thing. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody received such a poisonous pen letter while actually preaching a sermon. Someone out there in the congregation was apparently feeling highly uncomfortable and so hastily scratched out a note and passed it back to an usher who calmly walked up to the pulpit. The folded note had Mr. Moody's name written on it, reasoned the hapless usher, so Mr. Moody should receive the note immediately, even though he was preaching at the time. Moody took the note, unfolded it carefully, and read its brief content. One word was written on the page, fool. Moody sighed, refolded the note, and made an announcement. I've just been sent a most unusual letter from one of you in the congregation, he said to a fairly shocked crowd. Now this is most interesting, he continued. I'm often sent letters when people write the body of the letter, but just omit their name. On this occasion, in writing the single word fool, the person concerned has omitted to write the letter itself and has only signed their name. He then proceeded with his sermon. I saw the power of the anonymous letter while Kay and I were working on the staff of a church in Oregon many years ago. Having been a well-received part of the team for some 18 months, we had felt that it was time to move on into a wider ministry of itinerant Bible teaching. An announcement was made to the church advising them of our resignation and imminent departure. The letter, the anonymous letter, was sent to the senior minister and all of the deacons, but of course... Kay and I were not sent a copy by the anonymous writer. The letter alleged that the senior minister was jealous of the warm welcome that Kay and I had been shown, was nervous that we were popular, and so had acted to force us to leave. We were, the letter declared with the authority of one that knew, being driven out of town. The senior minister felt a high level of anxiety at this scandalous and totally untrue suggestion and criticism. I asked him to allow me to deal with the problem in my own way. It was our final Sunday in the church, my leaving service, and I was preaching my last sermon. The place was packed. Time for some redemptive fun. Before I conclude, I said... I want you to know that the senior minister and the deacons of this church have each been sent a copy of a letter, a letter without signature, which accuses them of treating Kay and me badly and suggesting that we are, and I quote, being driven out of town. I paused. Tension crackled in the air. I looked around at Pastor John, the senior minister, who shifted from side to side on his seat on the platform, feeling and looking very uncomfortable. I continued. 
I have decided to tell you the unedited truth about the senior minister of this church and the deacons too. Hey, it's my last Sunday here and I've got nothing to lose. I currently have the microphone in hand. So why don't I just go ahead and spill the beans, as it were, on these people? The level of tension in the church rose even higher. I decided to milk the moment. I walked back away from the pulpit and stood next to John. Placing my hand on his shoulder, I said, let me just tell you the unbridled truth about this man. Again, what have I got to lose now? Let's go for broke. Pastor John looked up at me with pleading eyes, sweat breaking out now on his forehead. I had to wrap this up, if only to put poor John out of his ministry. And so I continued, this man has done nothing. And I say nothing, but bless, shower kindness, encouragement and help upon me, my family and my ministry. He and the deacons of this church have done absolutely everything in their power to help resource and release me. I owe them a great debt. And so to whomever it was that wrote the anonymous letter criticising them and suggesting some kind of ridiculous conspiracy, I'd like to say two things. First, check your facts because you couldn't be more wrong. And second, next time you sit down to put pen to paper, have the moral courage to sign your name at the bottom of the letter. An unsigned letter is not worthy of the time needed to read it. It is a work of cowardice. Whoever wrote it, please hear me say this loud and clear. You need to repent. I sat down and the clapping congregation rose to their feet in what was not a standing ovation for me, but a message of love and endorsement for John and the team of deacons that served with him. And I looked around at the crowd, clapping and yelling and waving their Bibles and realising that someone, somewhere out there in the crowd, was the author of the anonymous letter. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love the Profile podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith, and testimony. Here's Joyce Mayer. Anything that we give up for God, He gives it back to us multiplied so many, many times over. I encourage anybody to make whatever sacrifices they need to to be in the perfect will of God because there's no better place to be. Listen to the full interview with Joyce Mayer now on The Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. This is Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. We're talking about criticism. At first glance, he looked like a perfectly ordinary chap. I had no idea that he was so immensely powerful. He had developed the ability to control an army without so much as a word. No barked commands needed from him. No parade ground yell of intimidation. Just a raised eyebrow or a frown, the shake of a head. And they all knew and would respond accordingly. Obedience without question or hesitation. I glanced again. He was the king of a kingdom. Scanning the otherwise responsive congregation as I was preaching, now he stood out like a very sore thumb, a very critical person. Seated six pews back on the left, the place where I later learned he always sits, his pew, he didn't look too happy. Either he was fighting to digest some food that had passed its sell-by date, or he was struggling to agree with what I, the preacher, was saying. Finding his stony expression a little disconcerting and battling a niggling anxiety that I'd inadvertently uttered something quite heretical, I made the mistake common to many preachers as I tried in vain to draw him into my sermon. 
Hoping for the merest hint of a smile, or even a nod of affirmation, I looked his way as I spoke, but he just stared straight ahead, arms folded and locked, a grim statue of a man. Then it dawned on me that I was not the only one interested in his expression. A good number of the congregation were listening to me, but had an eye on him. Some were actually leaning forward to catch a glimpse of his reactions. I wondered, why the fascination with him and his facial arrangements? That's when I realised that they, like me, were tensely waiting for a cue. Obviously quite a significant player in that church, this man's opinion was esteemed, his influence heavy, and so his response to this new speaker, mainly me, was a matter of great importance to almost everyone in the place. If he looked unamused, then their expressions turned frosty. If he looked concerned, raising a perturbed eyebrow or offering even the hint of a frown, then where his eyebrows went, others followed. Whatever he did, they followed suit. I guess that if he had smiled, then they would have relaxed, sighed with relief and smiled too. I said, I guessed. He never did get around to smiling that day. Inwardly, I made a diagnosis, which later conversation proved to be right. He was a baron, a critical baron. Barons are everywhere. You'll find them in every social context, committees, parent-teacher associations, clubs, families, and of course, churches. Barons are control freaks on steroids. They like their coffee, their homes, their marriages, and their churches to be neatly arranged around their preferences. Their environment neatly folded to their precise specifications. Some are recognized leaders. Most are not, but all of them certainly know how to get people to follow them. Barons will use a variety of tactics to get exactly what they want. Some are gifted exaggerators spinning stories of mass discontent to create fear. Often they claim to represent the majority, insisting that they have a mandate for their opinion. Everyone's leaving the church, said one baroness who boasted a PhD in control. Really? I inquired, genuinely alarmed at the potential exodus, but wanting to know exactly who was about to exit. Well, she nodded gravely, as if the place was emptying even as we spoke, lots of people are leaving the church. May I inquire exactly as to who is leaving? Well, two or three people. Well, please tell me who. Well, I don't like what's going on here, and if it doesn't change soon, I am leaving the church. I am embarrassed to confess that I resisted the temptation to do a little joyful dance. Some control by undisguised bullying. If they're leaders, they hiss that any dissent, any criticism, is divisive disloyalty and that an opinion contrary to theirs is betrayal, an insult to their integrity. The statement, you're a threat to our unity, is as devastatingly effective as you're a witch is to an unfortunate soul who is strapped into a ducking stool by a river. Still other barons use quiet, meek stealth, controlling as they don an apparently fragile demeanour. Concerned that confronting them would destroy them, everyone creeps around them and the sound of crunching eggshells underfoot is deafening. And then there are the baronial control freaks who use syrupy pleasantness to get their way. They smile and seem impossibly kind. To cross them would feel quite wrong. So nice are they. But behind the smarmy grin is a calculating mind. And church barons have the ultimate weapon, 
the G factor, G for God. When control freaks produce the God card from up their sleeve, they usually hold a winning hand. When you insist that God has spoken to you or that you're surely representing what he thinks, you play the ultimate trump card. Few can challenge you, and those that do don't stand much chance of winning. But even though critical barons may be powerful, they are not usually brave in battle. When they're in danger of losing an argument, they often cancel the conversation by jumping up and walking out. This is an ingenious device because it gives the impression that they are being highly principled in their retreat when they're actually just running for cover. So what if it's a cowardly stunt? Whatever works. Barons. Critical barons. Perhaps you know one. Perhaps you are one. Meanwhile, Back at that church where I was preaching, the barons sat rigidly unmoved and the people around him were becoming tenser by the moment. Seeing this bizarre scenario playing out before me, I momentarily considered confronting the situation head on by sharing an old chestnut. Knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. And quickly now, you're supposed to say control freak who? But then I looked at his set jaw and then at those who sat pensively around him, and I thought better of it. We've been thinking about criticising. Of course we have opinions and preferences. Of course we can differ in our ideas. But let's express them kindly, perhaps firmly, but with a gentle spirit. Because if we don't speak the truth in love, we don't speak the truth. See you next time. Lucas on Life.